0: Hello and welcome to the Health and Wellness Newsletter AudioCast. I am Dr. M, your host, and this is Volume 13, Issue Number 9, which corresponds with the week of February 13, 2023. The free thought this week, obesity is not a genetic reality, so much as it is an epigenetic phenomena based on exposure to chemicals, dietary decisions, and energy expenditure through movement primarily that we have control over relatively in our lives. As governing bodies of medicine and big pharma paint the picture that our way out of the problem is medicine, or for that matter, pharmacologic therapy and or surgery, we will treat the problem at the wrong end of the continuum in my mind. Obesity needs to be tackled upstream through lifestyle mitigation, i.e. avoidance of chemicals, dietary decisions that are pro-stable weight, as well as encouraging significant movement On a daily basis, that burns calories. I know I'm making this very simplistic, but these are the big pathways or the levers that can be manipulated in order to make an outcome change. This week, we have coronavirus update number 81, including the quick hits. We're going to talk about some men's work as well as finishing up with iodine and a recipe of the week. The corresponding podcast is number 39. COVID vaccine update with Dr. Paul Offit, the second time he's on the show. Song of the Week is As the Years Go Passing By by Albert B.B. King. Okay, so as of February 11th, when this newsletter came to be, the U.S. strains of Omicron were mostly made up of XBB 0.1.5 at 75% and then 15% BQ 1.1. Good news was that XBB 1.5 remains the dominant strain with no increased risk of hospitalization or death. Frankly, we relatively have a flatline scenario around admission, ICU use, uh, ventilators, as well as death for a long time now. So I think we've settled into this endemic state of Omicron, which is not problematical from the perspective of the vast majority of humans living in the United States. Anything you want to learn further about the variants can be found in the CDC variants page, which is very informative. Quick hits and other musings. Number one. An article in Nature Cell Research notes that repeated vaccination with SARS-2 vaccine leads to worse than neutralizing antibody responses to Omicron variants. Quote, our data suggest that repeated vaccination with an virus vaccine back boosts previous memory and dampens the immune response to a new antigenically related but distant or distinct viral strain. Such vaccination induced immune imprint could reflect the original antigenic sin doctrine described in the influenza field, whereby individuals infected with a new circulating viral strain developed a strong immune response to a prior exposed strain, end quote. This comes to us from Al, 2023 GAO. Yet more evidence that boosting with the bivalent vaccine offers little to less than little benefit for all but the high-risk individuals. Choose wisely This appears to be a period when natural infection for most of us is likely to be the only logical route moving forward. Again, data is key. We'll keep watching what happens over time. Number two, from a large meta analysis regarding masking use and benefits, we see quote, the pooled results of randomized controlled trials did not show a clear reduction in respiratory viral infection with the use of medical or surgical masks. There were no clear differences between the use of medical or surgical masks compared to N95 or P2 respirators in healthcare workers when used in routine care to reduce respiratory viral infection. Hand hygiene is likely to modestly reduce the burden of respiratory illness. And although this effect was present when ILI and laboratory-confirmed influenza were analyzed separately, it was not found to be a significant difference for the latter two outcomes. Harms associated with physical interventions were under-investigated. There is a need for large, well-designed, randomized contr- controlled trials addressing the effectiveness of many of these interventions in multiple settings and populations, as well as the impact of adherence on effectiveness, especially in those most at risk for acute respiratory infections. End quote, Jefferson et al., 2023. Personally, I find Vin- Vinay Prasad's commentary on this reality amusing and sad all at the same time. He states, in quote, it is irrational to mask, At best, you marginally delay the inevitable. And unlike Prevax, there is no milestone you are waiting for. Let's take a closer look. Here is the big summary finding. With 276,000 participants in RCTs or cluster RCTs, randomized controlled trials, masking does nothing. No reduction in influenza-like or COVID-like illness and no reduction in confirmed flu or COVID. That's stone cold negative. See those effect sizes and confidence intervals. End quote. I remember thinking how ridiculous it was that we were asking two to five-year-olds to mask in clinic, restaurants, and so on. None of them ever wore the mask correctly for any length of time. Parents were frustrated, and the benefit was known to be minimal at best, if at all, and worse. We have no idea of the psychological ramifications of a fear-based approach to disease mitigation in our very young children. Time will tell how badly our misguided masking policy have affected our children. I would think it's negative. I see no benefit positively now in hindsight. And frankly, at the time really didn't either, but you had to follow the rules. Personally, I still mask in sick clinic, primarily for the event where a child directly coughs in my face or what I call massive pathogen transfer. I may be mitigating that risk to some extent. So it's worth masking. The mask likely reduces the viral load of exposure. If I do get exposed and or sick. However, that is my choice and it works for me and I am in a high-risk setting. Let's just state that very clearly. A global mask policy has little to no merit anymore as far as I'm concerned in the general community outside of a hospital or clinic setting. Again, just my opinion. Number three, from JAMA, we have a comprehensive data set on death in children. Quote, there were 821 COVID 19 deaths among individuals from the ages of 0 to 19 during the study period, resulting in a crude death rate of 1 per 100,000 population overall, 4.3 per 100,000 for those younger than 1 year of age, 0.6 per 100,000 from those from 1 to 4 years of age, 0.4 per 100,000 for those aged 5 to 9, and 0.5 per 100,000 for those aged 10 to 14, and then up again to 1.8 per 100,000 for 15 to 19. COVID mortality in this time period of August 1, 2021 to July 31, 2022 was among the 10 leading causes of death in children between the ages of 0 and 19 in the U.S., ranking 8th among all causes of death, 5th in disease-related causes of deaths, excluding unintentional injuries, assault, and suicide, and 1st in deaths caused by infectious or respiratory diseases when compared with 2019. COVID 19 deaths constituted 2% of all causes of death in this age group. In 2019, leading causes of death were. Perinatal compl- conditions, 12.7 per 100,000, unintentional injuries, 9.1 per 100,000, congenital malformations or deformations: 6.5 per 100,000, assault, 3.4 per 100,000, suicide, 3.4 per 100,000, malignant cancers or neoplasms, 2.1 per 100,000, diseases of the heart, 1.1 per 100,000, influenza and pneumonia, 0.6 per 100,000. For comparison in the study period August 1, 2021 to July 31, 2022, there were 821 deaths reported for which the underlying cause was COVID-19, 1 per 100,000, meaning COVID-19 ranked as eighth leading cause of death and accounted for 2% of all causes of death. Quote, "This comes just from Flaxman, all 2023." However, What is missing in this data set as published is the groups that were at risk for death based on each of these risk stratification issues. How many of these children had a comorbidity known? I suspect that is a vast majority. This information would be very useful in helping to stratify which children need vaccination and or boosting. COVID death in children is similar in risk to influenza and pneumonia outside of those 0 to 1 year old age range where the risk appears higher for COVID under one year of age. Since vaccination is only available at six months and older, are we really discussing a six-month window of protection? So many questions and not enough data-based answers. Outside the children with comorbidity, having more risk stratified data would help to ascertain which children need to vaccinate in this early phase of life. Yet, we remain in the dark to the data that organizations are holding and not publishing. Even the study is opaque to why a COVID death occurred for a given age. A major frustration for me. Remember that the vaccine offers little to no transmission protection. Thus, it is only death that we are protecting against in that child. The final answer is that the only group, other than those with known comorbidity, that currently is at significant risk, albeit small, is the 0 to 1 year olds, leaving these parents to choose to vaccinate or not based on their risk tolerance of 4.3 deaths per 100,000 children. So, Lot to say there, but functionally everyone has to make their own decision based on the data at hand. In our clinic, we have had three years of the pandemic and zero deaths. Again, doesn't take anything away from those that have lost their lives, but again, this is just data. Parents have to make the decisions based off of data, not on emotion. Number four, we have looked and at learning before. And most, if not all, data showed a major slowing of learning in the U.S., especially in low-income children and heavily slanted towards math deficits. In a new meta-analysis in Nature, we see, quote, Our meta-analysis suggests that learning progress has slowed substantially during the COVID-19 pandemic. The pooled effect size implies that students lost out on about 35% of a normal school year's worth of learning. This confirms initial concerns that substantial learning deficits would arise during the pandemic. But our results also suggest that fears of an accumulation of learning deficits as the pandemic continues have not materialized. On average, learning deficits emerged early in the pandemic and have neither closed nor widened substantially. End quote. Betthauser, B-E-T-T-H-A-U-S-E-R, et al., 2023. This is somewhat good news if repeated in further studies that the deficits did not stack up upon themselves, leading to further long-term educational losses on top of the known losses. Five, if you're interested, information looking at EcoHealth Alliance and the NIH's oversight was recently discussed in the New York Times. Mueller et al. 2023, link is in the newsletter podcast. So there's a lot of stuff going on there, but again, that's only for those that are interested specifically in the lab leak theory and stuff that I find fascinating. Six, finally, an article looking at lifestyle choices and post-COVID long-term sequelae risk. You know, I've been beating this drum for quite a long time. From JAMA Internal Medicine, we see, quote, results, a total of 1,981 women with a positive SARS-CoV-2 test over 19 months of follow-up were documented. Among those participants, mean age was 64.7 years. per 0.4% were white, 42.8% were active healthcare workers. Among those, 44% or 871 developed post-COVID complications. Healthy lifestyle was associated with lower risk of post-COVID complications in a dose-dependent manner, which is key. Compared with women, without any healthy lifestyle factors, those with 5 to 6 had 49% lower risk of post-COVID complications. In a model, mutually adjusted for all lifestyle factors, body mass index, and sleep were independently associated with risk of PCC. If these associations were causal, 36% of PCC cases would have been prevented if all participants had 5-6 to six healthy lifestyle factors. Results were comparable when PCC was defined as symptoms of at least 2-month duration or having ongoing symptoms at the time of PCC assessment. PCC, remembers post-COVID complication. So, this comes to us from Wang et al. 2023. So the six factors in the article of lifestyle that were measured were body mass index, which is roughly a euphemism for body fat, not always perfect if somebody's muscular, that's not a useful marker, smoking, alcohol consumption, diet, so nutritional inputs, physical activity and sleep. I would have loved one other variable, stresses of the mind. See below for a breakdown of lifestyle factors in the newsletter. Go to Salisburypediatrics.com and click on it and you can look more. What this study indicates is the reality that we have discussed for years. Taking care of oneself reduces systemic inflammation and thereby viral induced pathogenesis. This study is critical to stemming the tide of prolonged COVID-related pathology and health span reductions. We need to pay attention to this stuff, as you know I always believe. Seven, massive problem on the horizon for patients of healthcare. One reported estimate, quote, that in twenty twenty one alone, about one hundred and seventeen thousand physicians left the workforce, while fewer than forty thousand joined it. This has a worsened, this excuse me, this has worsened a chronic physician shortage, leaving many hospitals and clinics struggling. And the situation is set to get worse. One in five doctors says he or she plans to leave practice in the coming years, quote. Reinhardt E. twenty twenty three. Folks, burnout is real. For medical providers, especially post-COVID based on a system of medicine nationally that prizes money over patient health. I am living this real time as we personally extricate ourselves from organizations that waste money and wonder why we are frustrated that a child or children are not receiving the services that they need or deserve when the finances are there. Read the entire New York Times article as it is real and will be a part of our lives moving forward. Quality in medical providers is going down as the older, more wise providers leave and are not replaced or partially replaced with a less knowledgeable generation of providers still in learning mode. Not to say they're not smart, but there's a lot of time that needs to be proverbially put under their belt educationally to hit that sweet spot of knowledge that helps each provider be the best they can be. I fear for those that are not as lucky as I am to know who is a quality provider for my friends and family. Again, this is real folks. I can tell you, I consider myself to be relatively educated, but those first five to ten years after residency, not too sure I was even remotely as qualified as I am today to do the job that I'm doing as good as I can today. This is just the reality of medicine. Time, repetition, learning, exposure. Losing the older generation is not in our best interests. Enough said. Eight. In a large Canadian study in the British Medical Journal, we see strong efficacy of mRNA vaccines against infants getting ill with COVID after delivery. The problem with using this study moving forward is twofold. One, now that everyone has natural or vaccine-induced immunity, does maternal vaccination help the infant now in this new landscape? Serious question. The statistics show that in total, 29% or 29 of 99 infants were admitted to the hospital because of a Delta infection, and 330 or 22% of 1,501 infants were admitted to the hospital because of an Omicron infection. Jorgensen at all, 2023. What I'd like to know is how sick did they get? Were they admitted as a precaution based on age, with little to no illness, which is a common event for fever in a newborn? This matters tremendously, again, as morbidity would drive me to want to vaccinate a mother and or her child for her child. However, if the morbidity is limited and or minimal, then the calculus would change. This question needs to be further analyzed before solid recommendations in my mind can be made. Maternal vaccination is noted to be associated with reduced maternal risk, which is great. However, I ask the question again, how this truth holds up now in XBB, another Omicron variant world. Okay, that's all this week when it comes to COVID-related issues. Let's move on to section two. Men, do you want to understand anger and relationship? This is part of the Men's Work series through the organization Man Uncivilized with Trevor Boehm that I've been a part of. Here's an excellent discussion and breakdown of how anger is necessary and accepted when used appropriately for protection and survival. It is never acceptable when used against another being for control, bullying, to have a differential power state, or in response to your own uncontrolled emotional issues. Regardless of our gender, we all have to let our anger out appropriately and not let it come out sideways at some point in our lives against others. It always behooves us to work on our inner self, to be grounded and in our adult at all times. There's a link to the video in the discussion. It's excellent. Go for it. Section 3. Iodine. An element found abundantly in the ocean and not in the earth's soil or crust. It is necessary for maintaining healthy thyroid. Thyroxin is the chemical that iodine binds to in the body to produce the two major forms of the thyroid hormone in humans. T3 or T4. T3 or four designate the number of iodine atoms attached to the thyroxin backbone. The thyroid gland located in your neck actively takes free iodine from your blood to make thyroxin as a 3 or a 4. T3 is the active hormone that is involved in all thyroid function. T4 is a precursor hormone that circulates widely in our bloodstream ready to become active as needed. Selenium is needed to activate the enzymes that convert T4 to T3. But in this case, we're talking about iodine. Iodine's role is so important purely because of the critical nature of thyroid activity. The thyroid hormone regulates the genes involved in metabolism. This means that it is necessary to control all functions from brain activity to gut to temperature regulation and on and on. We most commonly derive iodine in the form of iodized table salt. Seaweed, marine fish, and crustaceans are also good sources. Some eggs and dairy can have iodine if the animals are fed iodine. Fortified grains can be a source of iodine as well. From a medical perspective, iodine is a common dietary deficiency or insufficiency concern in inland locations where people are vegetarians and do not use iodized table salt. Processed food eaters will not have this issue. Sea salt does not have adequate iodine in it. Iodine deficiency becomes present as what's known as a goiter. A goiter is an enlarged, under-functioning thyroid gland. The associated symptoms include fatigue, constipation, temperature regulation, with feeling cold as a predominant symptom, dry and brittle hair, mental slowing, weight gain, and depression. Children born in an iodine-deprived environment will develop brain damage due to the thyroid dysfunction. Pregnant women need vastly more dietary iodine to support the thyroid needs that come with pregnancy. Anyone planning to get pregnant or who is recently pregnant should have a spot iodine checked by their OBGYN. Inadequate thyroid function can promote delivery issues with preeclampsia, prematurity and ultimately decrease brain function in the child. Taking too much iodine can induce hyperthyroidism and is especially risky over the age of 40. Taking iodine without knowing your need is not as smart as we age. Iodine can be measured as a spot urine test. The line Linus Balling Institute has a nice chart for iodine at the link in the newsletter. Heart drug amiodarone contains iodine and it can cause toxicity. Soybeans, cruciferous vegetables, broccoli, cauliflower, brussels, when consumed in large quantities, could block thyroid synthesis. Vegans and vegetarians are at high risk for iodine insufficiency. If we consume a whole foods, non processed diet that includes marine vegetables and animals, iodine issues are very rare. Aim for adding seaweed snacks, shrimp, fish, and other sources of iodine like eggs to your diet. Know the symptoms of hypothyroidism and act accordingly. In the newsletter, there is a recipe that has iodine in it. It's called Garden Shrimp Stir Fry. Note that six ounces of shrimp equals 70 micrograms of iodine, or half your daily needs. Pretty good. All right, folks, that's it for this week. As always, hug those kids. Now the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter audiocast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter audiocast does not constitute the development of a provider patient relationship. Have a great day.